Welcome to Talking Not Ranting. My name is Alistair Field. And I'm Greg Smith. And today we are with Shauna Coxon. Good morning, Shauna. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Very, very good. So folks, you've landed in the middle of our current topic series, The Struggle to Be a Good Manager. And today our episode is the first in what hopefully is a long series of interviews. And today's topic is the experience of women in the professional world. And just to set the stage for us, Greg and I have been friends for a very long, long time. And uh, uh, I think we're still friends. Are we still friends, Greg? We are still friends. Good, good. I was worried this morning. Uh, you, we were kind of late coming on the call. So um, <laughs> we have both been managers for a very long time. We have both benefited from other people assisting us in our management development. We've been hosting this podcast series dealing with how we and others have missed the mark. And, uh, you know, it is, has been a struggle to be a good manager. So over to you, Greg. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, we are now, this is our 19th episode, so we're very excited about uh, being able to do this and also venturing into this new space of having folks come alongside and interview them on this, this such an important topic. Uh, what, what Alistair and I, uh, throughout the podcast, we've, we've shared that we're, we're different, you know, where our backgrounds are different, our experiences are different, but we're also very much the same. We're, we're two old white guys. Uh, and, and so we're different in our thoughts. We're diverse in our experiences, but we have a lot the same. And we felt that uh, it was really important to hear other voices around this topic of things that we just didn't see and the things that we needed to continue to learn because we're both learners and we love to uh, better understand what we can learn from the different perspectives. So this is what this is all about. We're hoping to have a number of different interviews to get different viewpoints and different experiences. Uh, our whole uh, idea with this is uh, that it's like a diner and we want to pull up, have chair, extra chairs and have people pull up to the diner and engage with us in this such an important uh, discussion on the struggle to be a good manager and, and learn from each other the things that we've experienced that went really well and the things that didn't go so well and, and then also probe deeper into some specific issues. So this is why we're here and we're so excited to have you join us in this first of this new stage of the series. And with, with everything else that we do, uh, our underlying uh, concept, what we're looking for is to always have a really healthy conversation. And Shauna, uh, I'm sure we're going to have, have a healthy conversation today. And this is just awesome that you could join us. And uh, I'm going to ask Shauna to indulge me just for a minute as I go through some of her, her bio. Um, what I thought is I'd just pick out some highlights, especially things that are going to relate to our conversation today. So you are the Deputy Chief of the Toronto Police Service and you're in charge of communities and neighborhood commands. I'm looking at all the things that you're in charge of. I don't know how you have time to talk to us today, but it just reinforces to me the, the pleasure that we have having you here. And prior to that, you're in the priority response uh, command. Uh, and as, look, as I look through your um, bio, I see that there's a lot of things where you've helped transform things, whether it's IT, using uh, non-police personnel for things, all sorts of transformational task force, uh, inaugural compu computer cybercrime team. There's just a whole bunch of things. And something that really uh, resonates with me is your investigative experience. Uh, you've been police officer of the month. You received the William Bishop Award for investigative uh, excellence. And I know exactly what that award is all about. That's just awesome. All sorts of awards for complex cases that you've solved. A couple certificates from the Ontario Women Law Enforcement, which I think is, is an awesome organization. I know a lot of people that have been involved in that. Police Exemplary Service Medal and the Order of Merit of the Police Services. And uh, as well, just for our, our listeners, um, she has uh, Honours of Psychology from York, an MA in Criminology from U of T, and a PhD in Criminal Law from Leicester University. I think I'm saying it right, which I know is the kind of the favorite finishing school for police officers. A lot of uh, police officers get their MAs from there. She is very international, belongs to all sorts of groups. Also does a lot of charity, Project Child Care Foundation. At some point, if you want to talk about, especially these things, Shauna, please uh, do so. One thing that really popped for me of your resume, uh, Shauna, was uh, you participated in the Governor General's Canadian Leadership Conference where you tra traveled to Nunavut to speak to elders there about understanding reconciliation, which is something Greg and I talk about almost every episode now. And uh, just your reaching out to have relationships all over the world and your focus on community, on technology, on innovation, uh, having been somebody that's been in the police service, to me, that's just an excellent thing. So welcome, Shauna, to the podcast. 
Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So whenever you... I hear my bio, I always think of this funny story. I hope you'll indulge me for a minute. I was at this, uh, I was a, a keynote speaker at a dinner and I'm, and I'm sitting there, you know, enjoying my meal and they introduce me and they go through my whole bio and the guy next to me who I've never met before in my life who I was chatting with, he leans over and he says, wow, haven't done all that. I'm going to assume she's single. Am I right? And he starts laughing and the guy pulls me up on stage. I was like, hey. So whenever I hear my bio, I think of, I think of that guy and what he's doing now. <laughs> so. That's great. Well, I, we're uh, so, so, uh, so great to have you uh, with us today. And uh, so we, as you, you've heard, we are just uh, folks that are, 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 have come together to really create a space to talk about what we've learned, what we've done well, what we've not done so well, and, and with an intention of being able to create uh, the most effective and engaging space for the people that work for us. And, and so we've just been having the dialogue around that. So we'd love to kind of uh, just uh, have you, first of all, share, you know, what are your experiences when you think about those things throughout your career, just an amazing career and background, what are the things that, that are the highlights for you of things that really were the amazing points, the leaders that really did things that really uh, helped you accelerate uh, uh, in your growth and learning? And then maybe we'll also uh, talk about the things that maybe were the things that happened that, boy, weren't that great, but boy, they were great learnings for you as you, you've become the leader who you are. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I'm sure that both of you would agree with me that the, the key learning points are usually from something negative. It's unfortunate, but, you know, I always say, you know, a really difficult fall uh, causes you to think and reflect in a way that you don't necessarily when things are going well. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly the people who have invested in me and encouraged me and inspired me were not necessarily based on rank. Uh, there are a couple of key people along the way who really um, changed the trajectory of my career in terms of how they mentored me and developed me. And I, and I often did not see it at the time. Now with time and reflection and being in a different place in my career, I understand what it was that they were doing for me. And uh, at the time I, I didn't. So I always encourage people to think about the impact they're having on others. It doesn't matter whether you're a first line supervisor or a second line supervisor. In fact, you probably have more of an impact on someone's career at that one or two levels of management than you do where I am. And, uh, and it is really significant how you can change people's careers in the course of their life, really. Yeah, that's, that's I love that because, you know, in, in all of our podcasts, we actually talk about the role of the manager and things that managers can do, but we also spend as much time of a team member. So to your point, sometimes those mentors that you have are not bosses even. They're not even more senior leaders. They're sometimes people that you work with that really just have uh, this, this great sense of, of, uh, of uh, other-centeredness and wanting to really help and encourage and maybe give you the, the tough chat or maybe give you that encouragement that you need. So I think it's often the most interesting sources of, of growth. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about uh, those, those um, experiences. So what would have been one of your most, uh, and sometimes they are the falls, like you said, but what were, what's one that just jumps into your mind as a, a big aha that really has helped uh, been foundational for you? Uh, you know, when I started and I was new, I really struggled. And I, and I say that because I never dreamed of joining the police. I landed in this career by accident. So that's kind of an interesting story. It's a long story, but uh, this is not something I ever expected to do. So I was in a bit of, of a different position when I arrived in policing. And uh, my background, my history, I think was quite different than other people around me. And I remember that I had a coach officer for a day and at the end of the first day, they said, yeah, we're not, he's not going to be your coach officer anymore, um, quite frankly, because, you know, his wife will be stressed out if she sees you. So uh, we're going to take you away from him as your coach. We're going to give him to someone else. And then I got bounced around uh, my platoon in terms of they just every day I was with someone different. But eventually, after uh, a couple months, I got put with somebody really incredible who, interestingly enough, he's never gone for promotion. To this day, he's a constable. He'll be able to retire you know, in the next couple of years. But 
he really mentored me and developed me and was, uh, you know, somebody who was well-respected on the shift and just took a lot of time with me. And that really helped and supported me because going through that on my first day of work, and I thought my first day was a great day. I was, you know, and wow, was it ever a crazy day. I mean, we arrested multiple people. I wound up having a complaint made against me, which, you know, when you do frontline policing is fairly normal, but I didn't know that it was my first day. Uh, you know, so I went, you know, I went to two assist PCs. And if you don't know what they are, it's the 911 call of people on a 911 call where everything, the sky is falling and you have to rush there. So I had this crazy chaotic day and then at the end of the day the person who I really had come to look up to who was my lifeline uh who had been with me that whole first day to be told yeah okay that you're not going to work with him anymore, uh. was really uh, a blow so you know I do think that you're so right it doesn't have to be a manager and I am I'm still friends with and forever grateful to the person who took me under his wing certainly when I was new and what, what would you describe that as I, I do want to hear the background story of, of, cause we often fall into things. Right. And, mm. uh, so, so, uh, I'm not sure we have the time, we have to do a second series of, uh, uh, the, uh, Shauna's entry into the police force part two or something like that. So I'm really interested in that, but, but what would you say were the, uh, the attributes of that constable, that person who was your mentor in that, what are the things that, 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 that he brought that really uh, allowed that growth in, in you and that trust to build? Yeah, so he was competent, like very well regarded, very smart, very good cop, but uh, he was also confident, but not overconfident, which can be a problem. Mm. And then with respect to me, and, and not just me, but other people around me, he went on to actually develop several people on the job. He was very patient and didn't get frustrated when I didn't know the answers. Now, if it was the second or third time that I stumbled on something, then he'd, you know, which didn't happen often. I can think of only one occasion where that happened. He sat down and had the difficult talk with me. You know, it's okay to make a mistake. The same mistake, you know, repeatedly is a problem. So uh, he was just very patient and the kind of person that you want to do right by because you don't want to disappoint them. So instead of being, you know, bound by sort of punishment or, or fear, he was somebody who was inspirational and patient and really, uh, I believed that he believed in me. So, you know, I wanted to work harder. I wanted to do more. I would spend time when I was not working, researching things, developing, trying to understand the law better. Uh, I didn't want to disappoint him. And that's a consistent theme in amazing managers that I've had, that they, they took the time, they believed in me. I still believe time is the most precious thing that we have. And when people spend time with you, when they come and spend time with you, it's a big deal. Wow. Yeah, that's a, those, are, those are some great attributes. And I, I think that time aspect is really, really important. And how do you, maybe in your career as you've grown and that type of thing, I'm sure you get, you get busy and I mean, you know, a day can, can change depending on what it is. But how do you as a leader uh, continue to carve out time for those that you're mentoring and those, because that's a tough thing. We're all, time is, oh my goodness, it's such a, we fill our days up pretty quickly, but how do, how do you create uh, that time, uh, have you discovered? I think it's about being intentional, as you mm. talked about, in terms of, it doesn't have to be a lot of time, but it has to be significant. So I think a lot about what is symbolic and what people are looking for. It's not about what I think is important. It's about what makes other people feel valued and what that looks like. So I will do things that I know other people don't do. I, I go on the road on a fairly regular basis and people ask me, why do you do that? And it's because people who do the job, who are literally going to gun calls today, need to feel like somebody cares enough to show up, to personally answer questions and to physically go out on the street and to go to radio calls and, and to not be afraid and to not be in an ivory tower as we call it in policing. So I think it's about doing things that aren't just um, practical because they are, but they're symbolic. And another thing that I don't actually talk about very much that I do, I write a condolence card to every member of my command that's lost a family member. When I was in charge mm. of the priorities response command, I had 2,800 people under me. And, uh, you know, sometimes it was a couple of hours a week that I, and I often would come in on the weekend and, and do it. And it did a couple of things. For me, it's a almost meditative reminder as you're physically writing out cards that as difficult as this job can be, and it can be very difficult, uh, 
that that's probably not the person's worst day. The person's worst day mm -hmm. is probably the day they lost their mom or their spouse or their you know brother. And people are going through that every day, and we need to remember that. And and then I would just I just send them to their homes, and I write everyone myself. I don't no one does it for me. And I've had people, you know, hug me in the elevator, stop me in a hallway crying. Uh, and, and I've been really upset to learn that in some cases, people, no one said anything to them. Their immediate supervisors didn't notice. They went in mm. for a, an evaluation with their unit commander who said nothing. I guess nobody read the notices that we get in terms of, you know, who has died uh, in terms of people's families. And, and the only thing they got from any member of the service was a card from me. So I think we have to think about what matters. And, and also the things we do that are symbolic shows uh, what we value and what we don't value, right? And sometimes we can do that inadvertently by not doing things. So this is something I think about a lot. It's something I ask people about a lot. When I go on parades, I, I often ask people the question, what is it you want from me? So I'm, I'm your deputy and I'm here to be, you know, for you because you know how we get things done in the community is really through you so what do you need from me and people are flabbergasted when i ask the question which concerns me but in addition the number one thing people say to me is can you come more often we really just like being able to talk to someone at a higher level and it gives me a perspective that i may not have in fact in in the work that i'm doing so um it's not about the amount of time i think it's about the symbolic nature of what it is you do yeah, I love that. And, and, you know, honestly, I've been in business for a long time. Uh, in every organization that I was a part of, I did, I, in, I implemented Day in the Life where we would go similar to what you did. I, I was working for Porter Airlines and I was throwing bags through the, into the, with the, with the ramp folks because that's where you really get the heart and soul of what's going on and get connected. Uh, in, in a number of our podcasts, I shared there's a trust equation because most of our podcasts are about building trust. And trust equation that I love to use is, is credibility uh, plus reliability plus intimacy slash relationship over self-orientation. So the credibility you talked about, that constable who was, you know, very credible in their, in their uh, knowledge and experience. Uh, reliability is doing what you say you're going to do. Uh, but this intimacy and relationship piece is always the one that we miss out on and we don't put as much effort. And if trust is about knowing a person, we know that people uh, come and stay in organizations when they're valued and when they can make impact. So I love those examples. And then on the bottom is self-orientation. And that's about what do I think about how, how important do I think myself is? And you can't be selfless because then that's zero, but you can't be full of yourself because then that's way too high and that impacts that trust equation. So I, but I love the fact that you picked a couple things that you know are three things that I love there that were really important. And that personal um, acknowledgement and connecting with people, that's so powerful. Uh, some great examples of, of, uh, of uh, best behaviors. Wow. Thank you. Thanks for sharing those. Um, how about on the other side of, of those experiences? You know, we said, that, you said at the very beginning, sometimes we learn from the worst scenarios. And oh boy. I've had some of those and Alistair's had some of those too, but what are the things that you, you just, you, you, that may have happened to you in your career that you think about, wow, I just, I, I'm going to do differently this time. Yeah. I think it's, for me, it's based on personality in many ways. I've seen managers who are just mean, uh, people who are uncaring about their people. And let's face it, we've all worked for people who are just completely self-absorbed and if something goes well, they take credit. And if something doesn't go well, it's your fault. And there's nothing worse than working under that umbrella of fear because you know you can't fail. And, and quite frankly, you can't really succeed because succeeding is like a baseline because they're gonna take all the credit for it anyway. So I've always been really clear that when there are problems, they're mine because I'm in charge. So I will take on those problems. Not that there are, isn't work for everybody to do in that space, but I'll take that on and figure it out. And then when there are successes, I really want to point to the people that did that incredible work so that they can have that time in the sun um, because they deserve it. And it, it, that is what inspires people and hopefully takes away fear. One big thing in police culture, and I think it's more so in police culture than in other places, is there's a massive fear of failure, which is strange because when you're on a radio call trying to work things out, 
uh, you're actually not afraid of failure. You're just working the problem because you're in the space of, I got to get this done or somebody's going to die potentially. But uh, then you change over into the corporate side of the house. And uh, it's amazing because then people are really afraid of failure. They want everything to go well. And so how do you create a culture where people can fail and, and actually embrace that because the failure is necessarily necessary to get to success. So, um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's those, those are those are great. And as you're sharing your experiences, uh, I was never in the police culture, but I was definitely uh, had those similar experiences and what you learn from and what you what you do with it. Uh, so as 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 when uh, what what advice would you give to team members who find themselves in those situations where because you do sometimes have and again, as you say, it's personality. Um, you have those leaders that are so full of themselves and, and some that are, that are so intense, but what, what, what has been your experience of how best to, to respond in those more challenging situations? So I'm a big believer in networking and I, and I wasn't for a long time and, and that's a misstep on my part and we can talk about that more if you want to. Mm -hmm. But when I look back on those circumstances where I was working for someone where it was really difficult, uh, my peer group became extremely important and uh, you know, opportunities to try to reveal to the manager in a compassionate way uh, why their management style isn't working uh, can only be done as a collective because otherwise they think you are the problem. And I've had circumstances where I can tell you nothing that we could have done would have changed that manager's mind. But, uh, you know, in that case, even the worst of the worst, having that peer group to surround yourself with, to talk through things with, uh, to look for opportunities, to try to, you know, shed some light on things. I really do think that networking is very important. Yeah, that's I, I I love that. Uh, we we talk often about uh, either the inner circle, who are your tight group that you can always go to that have a voice, be vulnerable with, and kind of connect with, and trusted community, which is that, which is really that peer group to be able to be able to share and shift and move things forward. So you did kind of lead into it. So what did you learn about uh, what's your what was your uh, what was your pre uh, uh, realization of network, the, the importance of, uh, of uh, peer networks. Uh, what was your experience? You know, it's just that I think it's occurred to me in time. It's taken me a lot of time to see it. I was so busy, not trying to be successful, but trying to do good work. And in policing, it's interesting because you're trying to do good work, especially in the investigative space, because you want to be of service to those who have been victimized, right? So that's a very powerful mm. motivator. Mm. So I was so hyper-focused on that, that I took that mindset with me when I got promoted. And it wasn't that I didn't believe in people, I did, but you, you also expect that people are gonna be like you and they're gonna be very motivated by, you know, taking care of people and wanting to reduce levels of victimization. And that's just not the case. Like not everybody feels that way. And mm. when I, you know, got further along in my career and was successful, when I really looked around and thought about why was I successful and other people were not, because I'll tell you, I'm certainly not the smartest person I've met on this job and I'm certainly not the hardest working. I mean, I'm, I, I work very hard and I know I'm a bit of a workaholic, but I've met people who are even more so. So that isn't the thing. And I do think the part that I failed to recognize until I had more time on was how powerful it was. The people that I knew, the people that I hung out with, the people I went to for advice that gave good advice versus those who did not. And in some cases, I think I lucked out when I was new with what that network looked like because of where I worked. Uh, and then as I had more time on, it became the choices I made. And, and I gotta be honest, I've, I've made some missteps where I've trusted people that I shouldn't have trusted. So, you know, I always mm. tend to believe in people until they show me that I can't. But at mm. the end of the day, overall, I've been fortunate and I can say that it's been very helpful for me in my career. And it's the one thing that I, I talk to people about a lot because it's not an obvious thing, but these informal networks that happen below the surface of any work environment, I don't care where you work, particularly in larger companies or larger organizations, they really drive a lot of what happens in the organization, but it's not obvious because you don't see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it really links back to that whole, some of the things you're doing to build those trust uh, relationships, you know, 
um, uh, you know, sending those notes or being connected with folks. You know, we were talking earlier before we came uh, on the, in the prep around uh, COVID and how that's changed. That physically, we can't connect with each other as much, but there are different uh, uh, options. Like we can't hang out, you know, and build those relationships as much. But uh, I think part of uh, a number of things you've already said are key on building that uh, those relationships across, and uh, you know, uh, Stephen Covey talks about the uh, the trust bank, and uh, you know, the fact that every moment that you have, everything that you deliver, every follow up that you you do, uh, builds that trust bank, which is so important when you're trying to shift and move things forward. So, and I'm a, I'm a big believer in I'm a big believer in that. Yeah. I've actually read Covey's work in that, and 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 I'll I'll tell you right before I got on this podcast today. Uh, I phoned someone I've never met before who was introduced to me through someone outside the service who's in the innovation and startup space. And uh, I phoned her for no other reason than I was told uh, we have similar interests in common and it would be great to connect. And I immediately recognized through a short conversation that it would be great for her to meet two other people that I know. I have no idea where any of those relationships will go. But, you know, when you know people in the space, interesting things happen. So I sent off some introductory emails now they're following up with each other. You know, I can tell you 20 years ago, I would never have done that. I would have thought, why are we doing that? That makes no sense. And is there any value in that? Like, it almost feels a bit distasteful. In the policing space, you're just showing up to do your work, to do your policing work, to do your work mm -hmm. on investigation. Now I realize that those, those networks, those relationships that we build are huge. And so I will invest time in doing things for other people with no expectation of anything in return, because magical things happen over the course of time when you do that. Oh, I agree hundred percent. And, and it's, uh, and I, I think those, I, I do the same thing. I'm always introducing people. I'm always, uh, uh, encouraged when people send me a note to introduce me to someone else. Uh, it's entering in, uh, I've always said the two most important um, attributes of any leader is to be courageous and curious. And uh, that curiosity is about wanting to learn and grow. And courage is sometimes stepping into stuff that is uncomfortable, but is the right things to do. So uh, I love, I love that example. That's great. Um, uh, one, one thing, I guess, from our perspective is, as we've started at the beginning, you know, um, uh, one of the things that we've had conversation around is, is our blind spots, you know, our privilege, our biases and those type of things, just who we are. I mean, and, and that has been really in, important for Alistair and I as we've begun to expand this is that, you know, from a woman in a workplace, what are the, what advice would you give to uh, leaders, um, and it may be the same advice, but what advice would you give to leaders with regards to um, helping to create a space, uh, an environment that actually accelerates the participation and impact of women in the workplace? There's tons of studies out there. Uh, I just read one this weekend that is all about how how our genders are trained and uh, convinced that this is the way we're supposed to be and therefore all of our immense some of our systems and that are built uh, into those ways so I, I i just love your perspective of, of of what are some of the advice that you would give others so again i think we have to be intentional about it in a way that again i haven't been necessarily uh certainly until maybe in the last five ten years i've become more aware of it because Similarly to what men won't see because it's been their lived experience, I just did not appreciate how different mine was from other people around me. So I'll tell you that some of the defining features of my career have been loneliness. And uh, I say that as someone who was generally accepted, but you know, when people go out drinking, a lot of times women aren't invited. Sometimes they are. But uh, I think when we think about networking and we think about not just what happens at work, which is what managers think about, uh, when you think about what happens outside of work, in the same way that on the first day on the job, I'm told, you know, this person's not going to be your coach officer anymore because of how his wife might feel about it. Uh, you know, that's why women often aren't invited to do things outside of work, which means you're then excluded from key conversations, which lead to opportunities in the future. Who do you become friends with when you need to put together a team? Who do you trust? Who do you rely on? What does that look like? And it it just wasn't the same for me, although certainly I had positive experiences as well. I can tell you that that loneliness, uh, I don't think has been experienced in the same way by uh, men around me. In addition, you know, a lot of women were going through a very particular life cycle stage. So for example, they were getting married at the same time, they were having kids at the same time. 
for whatever reason, my life just didn't pattern out that way. So that was kind of a double loneliness where they were having, mm. you know, parties to celebrate the birth of children. And then they would get together on their days off with their kids. Uh, I wasn't invited into that circle either. So uh, mm. I think that you need to think about what does networking and encouragement look like? Because on the flip side, the pieces that were so helpful for me was people believing in me who I was surprised believed in me. So bosses that went out of their way to say, hey, I think you have capacity to do this. Bosses that pushed me to do things that I actually felt I wasn't necessarily capable of doing. And I was a little bit like, oh, that's too big a jump. And, and they pushed me hard. Um, those were things that really made a difference. And so when you see potential, particularly in the women uh, that you're dealing with on your team, you need to think about the fact that they probably need a bit of a push. Uh, I've read a study where, you know, women will read a job description and they feel like they need about 80 plus percent uh, in terms of matching what's on that job description before they'll apply. And men need about 50%. And they're like, I'm good to go. I'm just putting in. So I can tell you when I applied <laughs> to be a sergeant, which is the first level uh, supervisor position, I, I didn't want to. My, my boss pushed me and he was like, no, you need to do this. You need to put in. And I said no a couple of times. My first investigative spot, like when I, when I came and worked at sex crime, so specialized operation investigative position, I actually was told, you should put in, this would be really good for you. And I still pay thanks. And I didn't put in because I thought, you know, mm. uh, they're never going to take me. And, and yet, you know, not only did they take me, but I, I had some amazing opportunities there. But again, I had to be really pushed. I didn't, I didn't put in on the first uh, take. I had to be pushed by my boss who said, what do you mean you didn't put in? What, why didn't you put in? Um, so at every major turning point, somebody's pushed me and we have an in inspector's process happening right now in the Toronto Police Service. And the inspector position is really important because it's the first uh, level of senior officer. So you're talking about senior management, right? And uh, I noticed that there weren't a lot of women who had put in uh, and they still had a couple days to apply. But when I looked at the list as it was growing, there weren't a lot of women. And I, I phoned the bosses of a couple women who said, yeah, they're not interested. Like I asked them and they're not interested. So I phoned uh, a series of them individually to say, I think you should put in. Like I'm the deputy chief of police and, and I, I see you, I believe in you. I think you should put in. I can't promise you anything because I don't know what's going to happen in the process. That's, that's yours to win or lose. But, you know, you have potential. Why not like make us say no, come to the table, right? And, uh, and, and most of them put in, but they needed that call in a way that men mm. will not need that call. So you need to push mm -hmm. those that you have capability beneath you. Shonda, the flip side of that, um, and it's like just the other side of the, of the question is, what advice do you give on your experience to female employees that are in that situation where, you know, they might be underrepresented in the higher ranks and stuff like that? What do you say to the individual officers, the female officers, what advice do you give them to kind of uh, navigate this type of system? What are some key things that you did yourself? So uh, two things, one that I did not do that I wish I had done was create a broader network of people around me, in particular women. And listen, the old school way was that uh, women often didn't support women on the job. And that is radically changing. And I am working very hard in what I'm able to do in my position to change that because, and it, and it comes from a, a lack of women on the job in terms of numbers, because what happens is women think that other women are their competition. It's a really bizarre thing. When I went for deputy, I, I was applying for the job of deputy at the same time that Barb McLean was putting in for deputy. And the number of people that said to me, oh, you know, she's your competition, meaning they're only going to take one woman, right? So I talked to Barb about it and said, you know, because she's she's somebody I have a ton of respect for and, uh, and said to her, you know, like, just so you know, if you get it and I don't, um, you know, I'd work for you any day. I think you're amazing. And, and she said some wonderful things to me. And we both went forward. And guess what? We both got it, which was shock and awe because that had never happened before. So that mentality infuses itself into um, other women on the job. And it happens from scarcity, from thinking that, you know, there's only one seat at the table. That's going to be a checkbox for women. And I got to, you know, compete against other women for that spot, which is absurd because if there's 10 spots at the table, if there's 10 seats around that table, then there's 10 opportunities for women but you have to change that mindset so creating a network uh you know in particular of women who are your peers uh women who are above you and below you really uh you know working with each other 
And then the other thing is to, is to just take the leap. It's just, you may not have the confidence, but if you feel like you can meet some of the parameters of the job, make people say no to you. When you don't participate, when you don't put your hand up for promotion, when you don't put your hand up for that job you really want, even if it's a lateral move or something specialized, you're saying no to yourself by not putting in. And you know what? It's terrifying. I get why people don't do it, but you know, let other people say no to you because often no means not now or not this way. That's okay. I, I find it really interesting. Uh, your comment a couple minutes ago about how women will look at a job description and they're looking for the 80% mark before they jump to make the application where you know, the research I, I gather is 50% for male, just, you know, spreading that knowledge around with, with your peer group is a huge thing because automatically, you know, they're eliminating themselves from so many opportunities. And we all know, and, and Greg and I, one of the topics we're going to be we're trying to wrestle with right now in a production meeting is, is the whole idea of, of job descriptions and how they, you know, the job isn't what it really says. And, you know, people are putting a million things in a job description, which just means they're going to use it as a way to eliminate people from the process. But, you know, just that knowledge that, that uh, women are looking for, you know, 405 points versus what a man's looking for. It's just very valuable information for female employees. Well, it's interesting what you say about these expanding job descriptions, because you're right, I, I've noticed this trend as well. I think these are the systemic barriers that we often miss because the way that that will impact a woman will be different than the way that that impacts men in the workplace. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Greg, any points on that one? No, no, I just I just want to highlight again your, your point about going for it. I think is so important. Uh, in one of our other podcasts, we talked about... Uh, the frustration also when great people leave uh, and you didn't know that they wanted something. They didn't want their, they, we, you didn't know, even know what they want. And, uh, and so the only way you can do that is by declaring. And, and to your point, it might not be now, but at least that opens up the conversation to say, what do I want? And to begin the process of moving it forward. So I love that bold step of taking the leap of uh, declaring. Uh, and then if you have that community that you talked about earlier, that network of support, that's going to help you as you as you move forward. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's also, again, as culture starts to change, and Alistair, I know you'll know what I'm talking about here. It used to be that if you declared, they'd never let you have it. It was like the carrot of keeping you <laughs> on the hook for what you wanted, that they could get more out of you. It's such an old school mentality. So when I meet with people, I ask them, okay, tell me what you want. I'm not going to go tell the world, but if you tell me what you want, let's help you map it out backwards so that we can get you there. So do you need training for that? Do you need a certain position or experience for that? What does that look like? And the number of people that have told me in the senior management ranks, they've told me no one's ever done that for me before. Like, thank you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I've had several people tell me that, but it's, again, we're, we're trying to create culture change and it's, it's literally one interaction at a time, both in the organization as well as, you know, out in community. And one reflects the other. I, like, I really like that, Shauna, because I'll tell you right now, every specialized job I got, every promotion I got was an accident. You talk about getting on the police service is kind of an accident. Every good job I got, every promotion I got, it was all accidental. There was no plan involved whatsoever. And at times I had nothing to do with it. So I, 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 find, yeah. I think that's really, really a, a strong point. Well, one of the things that really kind of stressed me out when I, when I got promoted to deputy is the number of people, in particular women, who said, how did you do it? Because they're looking for the formula I used to get here. And Alistair, I got to tell you, I felt like you, where it's like, I don't, I don't really know. Like some of it seemed really happenstance or somebody pushed me in a direction that I wasn't willing to go. So it became difficult to give that advice. And it's actually why I've thought about this so much because... I want to give good advice, you know, something that's genuinely helpful uh, and practical that people can implement. Uh, but some of it is still going to be luck, I think, for everyone. But there are there are certain things that were magic along the way. But I, I didn't necessarily see that until I looked backward. And uh, I don't think there's a set formula. I think, you know, people will follow their own path, which is amazing. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a challenging thing because so much of it feels happenstance, for sure. Yeah, I got to the point where... Uh... I was pretty wary if I got called to some boss's office where it wasn't pre-planned, like it wasn't a regular meeting or stuff, because then I'm going, oh my goodness, what am I going to get tagged with now? Where am I going next? Yeah. Yeah. I still remember I went to work one day and my pass didn't work and it turned out to be an accident. And I literally parked the car and walked into the front door of the building because I just assumed they were transferring me somewhere. 
right? <laughs> the same thing, like, oh, I guess I work somewhere else now. They got something else they want me to do, right? But again, these are things that we're working on changing in police culture because, you know, as funny as these stories are, they're awful, awful. What a terrible way to have to deal with your career, mm -hmm. right? And try to navigate a space that seems so chaotic at times. Well, I don't think I don't think it's unique to policing. Uh, having worked a couple other places in my life, but I still remember, you know, being at Twenty Two Division. I'd put in for a transfer, hadn't heard anything, and my brother calls me at home and says, "You're going to Fourteen on Friday." I go, "No, I'm not." I thought he was pulling my leg, and no, I, I I went in, looked at the routine orders, found out I was transferred, cleaned out my stuff, never got to say goodbye to anybody. Showed up at a place, they go, "Who are you?" And I said, "Well." Here's a routine order. I'm supposed to be working for you on Monday. Like, what's going on? But I, I don't think it's unique to policing, Shauna, but uh, uh, it, it certainly is something that goes on. Now, one of the words I pulled out of your bio, um, and it's something Greg and I have talked a fair bit about in uh, production meetings, is reconciliation. And uh, in my experience, and I know Greg's had a similar experience, whether it was uh, in the secular world or, or um other places, there's been a lot of ceremony, uh, a lot of actions, a lot of talking, a lot of reconciliation about a bunch of different things. And, and one of them is uh, about how uh, the place women play in our society and, and the way that perhaps, you know, well, not perhaps, the way that they have not always been given the opportunities or the respect that they should. In your experience, have you been part of something or a discussion because what we're looking for here, um, quite often, there needs to be a practical expression of we're moving on, that uh, we're sorry, or that we're okay, or how do we move forward together? How do we have uh, an important dialogue about some of the issues about women in, in business, and you're in a very particular business, but have you experienced something that you found meaningful or practical that uh, people could kind of look at as, as, as a guide to kind of a reconciliation of the way that women, you know, in the past have not been treated well in our society, haven't been given the same um, opportunities or the ability to have an impact. Have you seen, have you experienced something like that? Yeah, and I think this is a unique time in history with both um, COVID and the protests that we've seen over the summer, because I do think that right now we are in a place where people are reimagining what their life looks like, both individually as well as, you know, in their workplace. What does that look like as well as society as a whole, which is why we're experiencing this uh, in the police sector in terms of cries for whether you want to call it reform or modernization, people are reimagining everything. And, and the beautiful thing about it, I mean, there's many beautiful things about it, but it's a sense of urgency that we haven't seen before. And I don't think that's going away. In terms of things that are symbolic and talking, I think it's, of course, those things are important. They really are. Uh, and I don't want to take away from the importance of dialogue uh, and sharing lived experiences and, and really being creative around what could be different. But I think that especially with what's going on in the world right now, what people want is a change in lived experience. And that is about shifting power dynamics wherever you work. And it's not just about women. I mean, you look at race, you look at ethnicity, you look at uh, sexual orientation, gender, uh, until people have a genuine shift in what it is that they experience in the world, wherever that may be. And until we see genuine and meaningful shifts in power, to give voices, because it's one thing to have a conversation, it's another thing to be in a position of power where change can be made. And only when those shifts occur will we start to see the kind of meaningful change that people want right now. Wow, that's really powerful. That's really powerful. Mm -hmm. And you know, we, we've been seeing so much over the last uh, five or six months in so many different areas. And, and this is why we actually uh, want other people to pull up to the table at the diner because uh, Greg and I, uh, we come from a position of, of uh, privilege. There's no doubt about it. And it, it has affected our, our opportunities, our jobs, our status, our economics. And, and it's something that uh, as somebody uh, being involved in some conversations, listening to conversations, being in a posture of learning and listening. Um, you know, I hear what you say when, when uh, a disadvantaged group looks at a power structure and doesn't see anybody that looks like them or can talk about their experience at all. Uh, it must, you know, it's obviously frustrating and uh, disillusioning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I always say, you know, to, to borrow on your analogy of, of coming to the diner table, the analogy I always use is who's not at the table. So I genuinely mm -hmm. think about this, like right now in our senior management ranks in the Toronto Police Service, 
you know, we have several uh, women who are gay. We have no gay men. What does that say about a male-dominated culture, right? There's there's a particular reason for that because it's there's no shortage of incredibly talented people. Um, there's no women who are of any Asian or South Asian orientation in terms of their ethnic background. You know, so having these conversations about who's not here and why. Why is this happening? Because again, there's incredible talent at the lower ranks. Why isn't that, you know, particular group moving up, whoever that is? Uh, you know, again, you have to have these conversations about making those permanent power shifts and to recognize that these challenges, because I'm a white woman, which is something that we may not see on the podcast, but, you know, I also have privilege and I also do not see what I do not see and have not experienced. But a lot of people in meetings, I've noticed, they want to ask, you know, people of that background. So for example, as a woman, they'll say, well, Shauna, like, what do you think? And, you know, I'll have my particular experience, but being a woman is a very broad uh, perspective and, and other women will, you know, radically disagree with me. And that's a good thing. Uh, but I, I love the fact that you're doing this because, you know, the, what we needs to change for women in the workplace is not a women's issue. It's actually all of our issues and we all benefit from the changes in power dynamics. And certainly, you know, in the discussions over the summer, over anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism and the things that need to happen, I mean, these are, these are problems regardless of your own background, ethnicity, gender. These are, these are all of our societal challenges that we need to solve together. And so that's why I think what you're doing is really great. These conversations are important. And what we want to do though, of course, is to actually have them lead to uh, power dynamics that shift in the future. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you how to wrap up, but you kind of wrapped up for yourself there. That was awesome. Greg, uh, some final thoughts from you, because I'm very mindful of the of the deputy's time and I see the clock ticking here. Your, your final thoughts here, Greg. Yeah. So first of all, thank you. My goodness gracious. I just loved um, that perspective and it's a desire that we, we are on ourselves and it's a desire of learning. It's uh, I love uh, we've been talking in one of the other podcasts that exactly the same thing of uh, who's not in the room, who whose voice, who is in the room and whose voice isn't being heard and who am I helping to uh, move that journey to a broader and it is a diverse, uh, it's funny because when I was working for Campbell's Soup, we were building a team and we said, does our team reflect the consumers that we serve? Uh, because, because as we're we're thinking from a product perspective, we were thinking that, and that that the power of that, and it and it transformed who we were when I was there. And it's the same whether it's a police service or that. Who's the communities that we serve, and how do you ensure voices are are being heard? But I, I've heard so many uh, great things. But what I love the most is it's it is about relationship. It's about getting to know. Uh, people and getting to know the needs of, of those around it. How do I best support? Keep making it personal as a leader, um, um, uh, connecting to what that person's needs are and helping to find the pathways. I so appreciate it. I've been taking lots of notes myself and thinking about, oh boy, I could have done that better myself. And, and that's a great perspective. How do I think differently that way? And uh, as I continue my journey of learning. So uh, I just so appreciate your honesty, your vulnerability, your, your, your optimism and your courage on, on bringing those things forward. Just uh, so appreciate it. And I think what I'm pulling out of this, uh, I agree with everything everybody said, which is very uncommon for Greg and I to agree on everything. Because <laughs> that's part of our dynamics. Uh, a couple of things you said earlier on when, when Greg was talking to you about your background, uh, the mentorship thing, and it's something Greg and I have discussed on numerous uh, podcast episodes. It pops up all the time. And, and one of the things I really liked about you bringing that up is, you know, often, uh, and I think it's Greg's pet peeve, actually, uh, quite often an organization will set up a formalized mentoring process, which is great. But when I look back into my experience, I think Greg had a similar experience. I had a lot of mentors, but they were transactional. They were temporary. There were people that at a, for a moment in time spoke into my life and, you know, tapped me on the shoulder and, and you should do this. Although I didn't really particularly want to do it and saw no point in it and ended up doing things. But I love that idea of mentoring. And I love the idea of the informal way that mentoring can happen, especially in the police service. I've had it in the police service. I had it at the government agency. I've been working the last 12 years. And I just love that. And I also liked, you, you really stressed uh, in answer to one of our questions in formal networks, how important those networks are. And I agree with you 100%. It isn't, it isn't until you look backwards in time. And there, there was a, a mentor of mine, actually, who one day uh, took a, a couple of us through a, an episode, uh, kind of a, a, an exercise, and he gave us stones. And he, he said, put the stone in your hand. Now, I want you to look back in time 
of all the people that had uh, some encouraging thing to say to you that helped you along the way. Those are the stones of your life. Now that you are of a certain age and you look back in time at those stones, those are the important people in your life. And you need to be a stone for somebody else as well. So I love that idea of informal networks, of, of you know, these informal mentoring uh, situations. And like you, I look back now, I go, man, that person, they really had my interest at heart and they, they had more experience and more knowledge than me. And so they gently pushed me in a gen, uh, certain direction or they pushed me, you know, whatever the situation needed. And I really like that idea. And I think, you know, Greg and I are very practical, tactical when we talk to people in these podcasts because we've made mistakes. We've seen others make mistakes and we've been blessed by, uh, people in our lives that have spoken into them and, you know, maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you should do this. And I really like that. And I think when we take it down to the level of managers and employees interacting with one another or manager to manager or employee to employee, those things are so important. And that's, you know, life is a bunch of little building blocks and it's those people that help us build the blocks and move us along. So I really love that out of your story and the importance that it played in your life, because I think both Greg and I are, are of the same opinion that those things, those little things are so, so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Shauna, thank you very much for spending some time with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, I had some expectations for this. I didn't know if they were realistic, but that is just such an awesome conversation. It's more than I thought it was going to be by about 10 times. So um, to all the people listening, uh, glad that you dropped in with us uh, today. We're going to be doing more of these and, and Shauna kind of laid the groundwork that we're going to have to do a lot more of these because she put such an emphasis on it. And we thank you for that because every once in a while we need to push in a certain direction. So I think Greg and I got that today. So we uh, hope that some of what we've spoken about you find helpful. We hope that you didn't find anything we spoke of made you really, really angry. But Greg, I think we have to rely on your happy or peeved philosophy uh in this situation yeah that's great we always end our podcasts with the uh, perspective that really came from uh, my original coach and the coaching sessions that we had and i would uh, often leave those sessions with her either um, really joyful and excited uh, that i did something well and i was moving in the direction or really kind of uh, angsty uh, churny and peeved because she brought up something that i knew that I needed to dive deeper and to reconsider. And the thing is, both are good. Shana, you talked about sometimes it's the it's the stumbles of which we learn. And so we often, we hope in all of these podcasts that at some point you're feeling joyful of, boy, I do that. Yeah, that's something that I'm really moving forward, creating the space, or maybe a little uncomfortable thinking, oh, I, I actually am not doing that. Uh, and, and that uncomfortable thing is just as good if you learn from it and grow from it. So we, we hope that you have some joy and we hope that you have some angst through listening to this podcast uh, and that you do something with that in order to continue to create the kind of environment that is not only good for you, for your people, but for the folks that, you, that are, uh, are, are working with you. Yeah, remember, folks, people matter. Take the time with the people you work with. They are an important part of your job, your success, or your failure. Talk to you next time. Take care.